Welcome to the Politics Guys Listener Mail Show, where we respond to your questions, comments, and criticisms. I am, of course, Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University, and with me is my regular co-host, uh, Jay Carson. Jay, Jay. Yeah. how are you doing? I was like, I blanked for a second. Wait, you're okay, Jay. We had a, we yeah, had a long know. morning. Yeah. It's been, it's been a while. Like a yeah, exactly. Marathon Absolutely. Yeah. So I thought we'd just plunge right in. Um, before we do, I just wanted to point out that if you haven't yet taken the Politics Guys co-host listener survey where you can weigh in on what you think about all of us, really, but especially our potential new co-hosts, Athena and Alexandra, we'd really appreciate if you do that. And I will put the link to that in the show notes, just like I did for the Saturday show. All right. So it brings us to our first question, which actually uh, relates to this. Uh, after Trey's show with Athena King a couple weeks back, uh, listener Mike left the following comment on politicsguys.com. He uh, said, where's Jay? Are you seriously railroading him because you don't agree with his stance? The show is trash without him. <laughs> so, Amen. I love that. I, I love that comment. I love the passion. You know, Jay, you get a lot of flack from people. I do. And, I and do. in fact, and, and just to be clear, no, I, I have not been uh, railroaded. I have not been railroaded. Uh, that I, that my, the three week hiatus actually just sort of coincided with um, a couple other things that we're, we're doing. One, trying out some, some new, new folks on the podcast, uh, which to some extent is, is made to be able to well, let Mike take a break every now and again. Um, uh, and second, uh, I, Gosh, I had a trial, and then I was traveling from work, uh, and then I just have all all sorts of other stuff that was on my plate. Uh, so it sort of worked out as as a good time for me to take a couple days off. And I I'll, I have to tell you, um, at the bit, uh, and then I missed uh, a lot of being able to jump in on on that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, last couple of weeks when America needed me most, but <laughs> but uh, you know. No, I agree. It was tough to. I I mean, I took two weeks off as well, and it was tough to sort of go through that and have all these things happening and not have this forum that, that you and I have. And I just wanted to also just reiterate that, that uh, Jay and I are, as far as I'm concerned, the heart and soul of this show. We're the founders and I don't, we have no plans to change that in any way so that we certainly have other hosts. And in part, it's to, to give both of us a break from time to time. And I think how, how we see things going. Because, because again, the, yeah, podcasting is, is less lucrative than, than you might imagine. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and both of us have to sort of have day jobs and, and sort of other things, uh, other projects in addition to the day jobs to kind of keep going. So. Yeah. I mean, and I'm working on a, a, trying to get a book project together and that's going to take a lot of time, but uh, where we'd like to be, I think is essentially to have, you know, Jay and I, we're going to, you and I, we're going to be doing the show more often than not, but to kind of spell us, we have, you know, on the, on the right, you know, we have, uh, we have Trey and now we have Will. And right now on the left, uh, aside from me, Ken comes in about once a month or so. And we'd like to get one more person on the left to kind of balance things out, liberal, conservative, different views. And, and also, of course, to have more diversity, to have a non-guy politics guy. I think that's an important thing. A lot of listeners have asked for that, and I think that would be great if we can do that, which is why we brought Athena and Alexandra on. So that, that's what's going on with that. And again, if you want to weigh in on that, we hope you do. Please take the survey. It'll be up for probably another week or so, and we really want to hear what you have to say about that. All right. Next, we have Kyle, who writes, as a Canadian, your recent NAFTA commentary was 
particularly of interest to me, and I wanted to comment about something Michael said about Canada partly being at fault for not offering concessions on the Canadian Dairy Supply Management Program. Blame Canada. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it brings me back. Anyway, um, while at face value, I can see why supply management may be a source of some frustration to the U.S., the notion that something that makes up less than 0.1% of NAFTA in regards to the financial should be a sticking point on the agreement is absurd. While the dairy industry in the States is suffering, Canada's supply management has little to no role in the loss of stability in the American system. It really comes down to automation and genetic engineering. In fact, America has an over $400 million surplus in dairy trade with Canada. Canada just strictly regulates the quality of product that is allowed to enter Canada tariff-free. Next, in order to protect Canadian dairy farmers, Canada needs to maintain regulation simply due to the size of the market in the U.S. versus Canada. Complete free trade would flood the market and crash the industry. I was under the impression, at least from the Canadian standpoint, that the key sticking point in the negotiation was not so much around supply management, but has more to do with Chapter 19 around dispute settlement. Something equally as important to Canadians, especially related to the size differences in GDP and population between Canada and the U.S., a, a just dispute resolution mechanism is essential for any true free trade agreement to be effective in the interests of all countries. So there are a couple things here. I should point out that. Uh, at first, I'd say, damn, dude knows his dairy policy. No kidding. That, that's very, very, very <laughs> impressive. And, you know, we have a lot of listeners like that who are very, you know, focused and know a lot about policy and have these intelligent and thoughtful comments. I love comments, especially that are very policy and fact focused like that. That's great stuff, you know, catnip to us. Um, but in the treaty, in the treaty that was signed, the USMCA, which, um, I, I was pushing to be called uh, Camus, which I thought would sound a lot better. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, as, as a Marine, anything that starts with USMC sort USMC. of also is something I kind of like as well. And it couldn't be Camus because U.S. would be last in that. And, you know, it has yes. to be America first. But And there would also be the whole sort of, you know, existentialist sort of You know, yeah. Thing. yeah. But, would... but, yeah, a couple of things. So uh, on the dispute resolution thing, Canada basically got what it wanted there. That really hadn't changed a whole lot. Now, on the dairy management thing, that was where Canada lost a little bit. The policy has been uh, relaxed. Now the U.S. is going to be able to ship more dairy products into Canada tariff-free, uh, and that, that ramps up over time. But that's not something that Canadian dairy farmers wanted, certainly. And so I thought uh, there were two issues here on the dairy supply management program. Well, first is the, the quality control thing. And my understanding is this, is that essentially that this relates in large part to the uh, growth hormone, genetic engineering thing. And in Europe and, and Canada as well, to a certain extent, this is a much bigger issue than in the U.S. And basically in the U.S., our argument has been both, at, both in Democratic and, and Republican administrations that this whole GM, GMO thing is not really a quality issue and that there's no reputable scientific evidence that links genetically modified milk or crops with any sort of health or other concerns. And therefore, it's not a, a reasonable basis for a, uh, for a tariff barrier. That, is that kind of your understanding, Jim? Yeah, yeah. And that, that's kind of how I feel about this as well, you know. And I think a lot of times when people argue about, you know, uh, they talk about how the right can be very unscientific. And they argue against climate change and things like that. And I certainly agree with that. But I also agree with the argument saying that, well, the left has this kind of GMO uh, boogeyman sort of thing where they're not really 
responding to the signs, but responding to fears. Right. And I think this it's, is kind it of- is more an aesthetic concern yeah. than is a scientific or safety concern. Yeah, exactly. Now, then there's also the thing that, that Kyle writes about, uh, well, given the relative sizes of the market, complete trade would flood the market and crash the industry in Canada. And sort of from a free trade perspective, which both of us are free traders, I would say, well, that's a good thing. Right. I mean, that's a good Adam, thing. Adam Smith, Adam Smith would sort of, that would, that would that's almost exactly sort of, uh, I think some of the, the examples he used, you know, back in the day when he was talking about trade between uh, England and France and England and the rest of Europe. Uh, if somebody else can do it better and do it cheaper uh, because of their uh, situation, whether it's their natural resources or, or, or whatever, their, their affinity for, for, you know, whatever that, that certain product uh, or market is, uh, then, then let them do it. It'll, it'll result in, um, uh, more product at lower price for everybody. Yeah. But that being said, even, even conserve, somewhat conservative economists have admitted that the, the benefits to free trade, well, not so much the benefits to free trade have been exaggerated, but the harm that comes to certain groups was maybe downplayed because the thought was sort of that, well, there'll be these internal readjustments. People will find other jobs. We'll have, we'll have retraining programs and other things and, you know, adjustment, uh, various forms of adjustment. And that really hasn't played out as well as a lot of folks hoped. And so my argument, and I think the argument for from some people on the left is that, yeah, it, you know, free trade is on balance a good thing, but we need to pay more attention to the workers who are displaced. And that's in part why when these trade agreements are negotiated, that they sometimes go into effect over a decade or more yeah. Yeah, to phase in, to have this opportunity. Mm. And I think we really do need to, play, to pay more attention to job retraining and making sure that the groups that are hurt, because this, this, this is an example of a policy that has overall very diffuse benefits, but very concentrated costs. And we need to think about the groups that are facing those concentrated costs and what we can best do to ameliorate those costs to those groups. I don't know if you yeah. disagree with diffuse that. Diffuse benefits and concentrated costs. I like that. Was yeah. that yours or is that? Oh, it's just kind of, in. I, I, teach a, I teach a policy analysis course and that's kind of a big thing we talk about when we talk about right. analyzing policy. So yeah, kind of on the tip of my tongue, I guess so. But, uh, but I do think it's not, it's not like you're saying, Jay, well, the hell with the Canadian dairy farmers. <laughs> Certainly you're not saying right. that, right? Just that, well, that's an industry that if it's not as competitive and it doesn't offer something that's better in quality needs to go away, but we also need to, you know, try to find some way to not just throw these dairy farmers, some of whom have been involved in this industry for generations, just out into the street, essentially. Yeah. Well, you know, the other, the other um, piece of it, and then this is, this is something that, you know, look, say, say American uh, dairy producers did ship uh, more milk, uh, more cheese, more uh, into Canada. Uh, maybe the response uh, ought to be um, by Canadian, right? I mean, uh, amongst uh, uh, Canadians, you can you can market this as, hey, yeah, you could buy that American crap, uh, or you know, uh, you know, Canadian-made, uh, GMO-free, right? Um, you know, and and there's you know there's a market for that, and you charge a higher price for it. Uh, the market also works that way. Um, yeah. The other thing that's kind of weird about this whole thing is my my sense was that Trump sort of picked on this whole dairy thing as as just sort of a here's his talking point because yeah. that was probably the biggest thing he could find in NAFTA. Of the, oh, where are we really getting ripped off? Well, what's this dairy thing, which was quite honestly not, you know, you know, as, as, as Kyle points out, the balance of trade of NAFTA, this is a very, very, you know, small piece. Um, 
Absolutely. Uh, and I, I think I think Trump just kind of used that as a talking point and a lever uh, to get more of the renegotiation. Um, and really, it's it's the the issues with Mexico that were the much bigger deal than than with Canada. Yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. Yeah, we're not we're not concerned about you know protecting or, or, or having the American dairy market take over Canada. I'm sure they might like that, uh, but it's probably even not the top of their priority list. Uh, the much bigger piece was uh, you know uh, manufacturing moving to Mexico. Yeah, low wage labor, wanted, and, and then and it had to be it had to be tied together. So. Yeah. I should point out, too, that even though there's been an agreement, you know, Mitch McConnell said that it's not going to be voted on this year. And so, you know, we're assuming this is a totally done deal. And maybe, you know, maybe that'll turn out to be the case, but it's going to be the next Congress that votes on it. So, uh, you know, and so we'll have to wait and see sort of how that how that goes. Certainly, my, my guess would be is that it does get ratified. But, you know, we, we have elections to come and this isn't going to happen until until 2019. All right. Um, next, we have Jesse, who's one of our Patreon sustaining supporters, been a friend of the show for a while, wanted to let us know about a problem he's been having with the show uh, of uh, late. Yeah, you know. Um, so he writes, I've been a little turned off by the dismissive stance you guys generally seem to take to what are, to my mind, some of the most consequential areas of modern politics. You're familiar, I'm sure, with the term Overton window. My complaint with your show is that you keep the Overton window rigorously narrow, which it, which, sorry, when it is often the area just outside society's Overton window that the most consequential and disruptive forces arise from. People willing to talk about things outside the Overton window are often dismissed as lunatics if their claims are nonsensical or alarmists. <laughs> as are we. Yeah. <laughs> if their claims are merely unlikely. But the alarmists, people who said things like, Trump could actually win, have been, proven, have been proven horribly right with enough frequency recently that it is irresponsible for you not to give careful consideration to what might be seen, but seem like unlikely possibilities. As it said, sunlight is the best disinfectant. By keeping your Overton window shut too tightly, you're keeping the sunlight out. I like that your show is civil, rational, and so on. But I also think it's closed-minded in a way that rational alarmists like myself find extremely frustrating. So I guess to start with, I should point out the listeners who aren't familiar with the term Overton window. It's uh, sometimes called the window of discourse. And basically, it's this idea of what are the sort of range of ideas in normal public discourse that are considered worth talking about, that are tolerable, if you will. And the reason it's called the Overton window is the guy who developed it was a guy named Overton. So there you go. Um, it was a complete nut. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, but, but that's what the idea is. So Jay, what do you think? Is our Overton window too, too shut too tightly, too narrow? You know, I, you know, here's the thing. Cause and actually there's, you know, complaints uh, on the right that, that we get sometimes from that too. I mean, a lot, a lot of dealing with uh, the Russia investigation and, and uh, the FBI's role and all, all those sorts of things. Um, and maybe a little bit, but I, I think you know what what we try to do here is is look at more politics, analyze politics, and, and talk about policy. And to do that, we sort of have to focus on on sort of an agreed set of facts. Um, so often, when the facts are in dispute, uh, we, you and I tend to pick stories where the facts are not in dispute, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, and we can have different different spin on on those facts or what they mean or what's going to happen next. Um, 
but but so often it's it's difficult um, uh, to to do us to do stories uh, on things if we don't have a, a definite common factual background that we're we're talking from. Um, the other thing I, I think we we look at is is just one of of time limitations, right? I mean, we only have, you know, we can only do two or three three or four stories uh, a week, even when we add sort of the extra shows, um, uh, and we want to you know treat them with with enough enough depth, but still have enough variety of of, of material out there. Um, so that makes it, it it tough to to get to things that are are maybe a little farther farther off the beaten path. Um, so I mean I guess that's that's my answer. Um, uh, and and I mean, I, you're not going to be are you more or less in the same camp as is that yeah, I mean yeah I, I would certainly agree with that. The other thing I I guess I would add is that my, my feeling is that there's there are a lot of resources for rational alarmists or irrational alarmists on on both sides. And you know you're right in the sense that I think we if we tried to address that, we would simply be too broad and we'd kind of lose our focus. And so in a sense, I think, I think Jesse's right that we have, we have sort of made a conscious decision, at least you and I have to keep our Overton window somewhat narrow. You're, you're a person of the, of the, the center, right. And now some of the folks on the left would say, no, he's far right. Believe me, Jay is not <laughs> far right by, like I said, I said, bring back, bring back Joe for a guest, host, yeah. guest spot sometime. But, but and, and I certainly am center left. And so we have, we have made a conscious decision to not really focus a lot on those viewpoints, not because we don't believe that they're worthwhile, but in part from what what you said, Jay, is because we just can't bring in all that and keep our focus. But also because I think there's a lot out there that already caters to folks like yeah. that, you know. And so if you want to hear what further right or further left voices, or, you know, Pod Save America, great podcast for rational and somewhat ir- irrational, I would say, alarmists on the left, for instance. Um, uh, ben Shapiro, some other folks, great for people who are a little further right. So that exists. And I would encourage people to definitely check out those other shows. That's just what we decided, not what we're going to be about, essentially. So I, I don't disagree with you, Jesse. It's just kind of not within our kind of not within what we decided our purview is going to be, you know, at least, especially I think you and I, Jay and, and Trey, Definitely, and to a certain extent. Now we well, get into Ken. Ken certainly a little further left than I am, um, and so we are bringing in other voices. But I think we're still going to. Ken raised the Ken raised the argument that the president is in actuality a a Russian spy. Yeah. Ken's Overton window that's is a little a pretty, more that's open. A pretty, that's yeah. a pretty wide Overton window. Yeah, exactly. So we do we do bring the these other voices conspiracy in. in American history. Yeah, we do we do bring these voices in, but I think you and I and kind of we're the, sort of the show's DNA. We're we're kind of just sort of centrist moderates by nature in a lot of ways, and that affects. Yeah. No, almost you know, everything. I want to I want to bring one other point that sort of so much of what I try to focus on. I think what you try to focus on too is is where the ball is really in play, right? I mean, where what really happens um, uh, in the trenches. And, and from my view, uh, having worked in politics and, 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 and your view of looking at it academically, um, we look at here are, are the issues that really matter that people decide on uh, that, that are, uh, take the most, and, and, and that tends to be these sort of mainstream sort of things. And you, you necessarily, I mean, that's, that's like where the action is, you know, where the real blocking and tackling yeah. Uh, of American politics takes place. Um, 
uh, it's, it's, uh, and that, that's just, so, I mean, I, we try to focus on that because I think, uh, there are a lot of, um, uh, more, more fringe things out there. And, and again, in my experience, most of the, those fringe things, um, well, we could have a whole show on this, but you look, conspiracies are tough to pull off. Yeah. Um, it just, it just really, you and I really, agree about that's that. The yeah. Biggest, that's the biggest, uh, thing. And there are, there are sort of certain conspiracies and maybe we could call them conspiracies is wrong. Uh, or they maybe look like conspiracies, but it's, it's really just sort of, uh, people acting their own interest and, uh, with their own natural affinities. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right, moving on. Let's see. We have um, Ryan. Ryan right. writes, uh, I was thinking of the tax policy idea of tying lower wages or lower rates to wages. If you want a lower tax rate, you need to pay your employees a higher wage. If, for example, you pay your employees an average of $15 an hour, you get a tax rate of 30%. But if you pay them $20 per hour, your rate would drop to 25%. These are just some examples of what it might look like. Would something like that work? I know we have incentives in our taxes via rebates, so I don't see how this would be much different. Is this a policy a conservative could get behind? Is this a policy liberals could get behind? Um, Jay, what do you think? It's a conservative standpoint, probably not. Um, to me, so much of, of this, it's already built in just in, in the nature of, uh, look, if you're, you're paying salaries, that is money that you're not taxed on. Um, you know, so it's essentially a tax deduction. The more people you hire and the more you pay them, uh, the less um, uh, the less taxes you pay, uh, essentially, as a you know portion of you get that that bigger deduction. Um, there are, as you said, there's also there there can be various kind of rebates for certain types of hiring and and so forth, um, uh, or in certain industries and and all that. Uh, I think the the conservative response would be, uh, no, you don't want to add more wrinkles, more complications, uh, because what that does is, is just allows people to game the system more. Um, you know, for example, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, well, does that mean, so if you have fewer employees, but pay them more, do you fall in the lower tax bracket? Uh, and does that, does that create sort of a perverse incentive, right? Yeah. To have fewer higher paid employees. Yeah. Um, uh, likewise, does it, does it put, uh, caps on, on employment to say, uh, well, okay, we'll pay this much or, or just, just under this much. Um, uh, uh, but we, we don't want to give anyone a raise because if we do, that's going to not, or, 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 um, uh, right. Or we want to keep everyone in this, yeah. this lower, we want to keep ourselves in the lower tax bracket. So therefore we'll have this, uh, this wage, um, I guess those, those are my, my thoughts again, we're not, not having like really, you know, thought through the whole thing, yeah. but you know, I, I sort of like where Ryan's going with this. And I think his, his thinking on a conservative perspective as well, if you incentivize companies to give more money to people, as opposed to giving more money to government, maybe that that's the right kind that's the kind of incentive a conservative could get behind. Cause if you're, if your options are to give the government more money or to give your employees more money, well, the more conservative choice would be to sure. give your employees more money, which is why probably it could potentially get some conservative buy-in. My think, my concern with it is, but again, that's sort of already baked in. Is is my response right? Yeah. I, I think my my concern with it is very much along the lines of where yours is. Is while it's true that we use the tax system to affect behavior all the time, the more complex we make that, as you point out, the more opportunities there are to find loopholes in the game that system. And I am actually for a as simple a tax system as possible with as few loopholes as possible, as straightforward of rate setting 
as possible, just with higher rates and fewer fewer loopholes. Maybe you would go for lower rates and fewer loopholes. Yeah. Certainly, but no, it, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say. I mean, here's here's another example of of uh, you know how do you how do you do this this counting and say you've got um, one uh, you know you've got you've got sort of a holding company or or a corporation that owns various subsidiaries. Uh, you know, do you move, do you move your lower, lower wage operation stuff, uh, out of the country or, or out into a state or someplace where you don't have to pay those, uh, those workers as much, uh, and then you keep your higher paid workers, uh, in America and then get a tax cut. Uh, there, there's those kind of things that I think would be unforeseen consequences. CJ, um, this is, I've just, I've just foreseen, I've just foreseen some of them, but yeah. yeah. And you're and you're not a and you are not a a, a tax a tax attorney getting paid you know in the right. in the, a lot of money. Right. To, I just came up these, with yeah this. exactly <laughs> it's on the top of your head so you can imagine. And this to me is why I would love to see something like a VAT you know a value added tax a pretty simple straightforward thing. And in fact, there are a lot of conservatives who don't necessarily think that's a bad way to simplify the tax system and get rid of this incredible disastrously huge tax code that we have that's essentially a full full employment act for tax attorneys and accountants and so forth now i we could do a whole show on that it'd be the most boring episode ever but it'd be fascinating to like five percent of the people who are really into that sort of thing so um all right um let's see we have next evan who asks i've heard lots of criticism about the libertarian party and how they're socially liberal but fiscally conservative policies look good on paper, but often contradict each other when implemented. I've even heard libertarians compared to communism in the way their ideas seem good on paper, but are not practical when actually implemented. This seems extreme to me. What do you have to say to this? Can you give me some examples of libertarian policies that have been implemented successfully? So that's kind of a, a I think at first, to the implemented successfully thing, Jay, I'll defer to you uh, on that. Can you think of any instances in which sort of a libertarian approach has led to uh, overall benefit? Well, I'd say generally, um, you know, a libertarian approach. There, are, it's it's a matter of degrees. Um, uh, you can go sort of the the look, let's start deregulating uh, uh, various industries. Uh, and I think that has yielded yielded a, a great. Uh, I mean, deregulating the airline industry. Um, I mean, some people would argue no, that wasn't great. But look, you can you can get uh, you can get around the world now much cheaper than you could before. Uh, it, it's greatly changed the availability of 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 being able to fly and and you know where you can get to and so forth. Uh, deregulating the telecom industry. Um, my gosh, where would we be if if that wasn't the you know. You know, we're still sort of a monopoly with Ma Bell sort of thing. It's interesting you 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 mention that because my you know my mom still sometimes says I don't know this would be a long distance call like that's right <laughs> still but that used to be the they used to be the mindset right it's like oh, I can't distance. yeah yeah but but I wonder if that's more of a technology thing than a deregulate but that's another that's another story. Well, it's, it's both. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, here's the thing: is is if you if you deregulate, if you get make sure you don't have uh, state sanctioned monopolies. Uh, or oligopolies, what you've got is is competitors who will innovate and move move the technology forward. Uh, if you don't have that that motivation to to innovate, I don't think you necessarily get the technology uh, boost that you would. Right. You know, um, so so those I mean those are places I would say yeah the libertarian and look if I would I would argue a lot of what uh, Trump's done with deregulation across the board has generally boosted um, uh, our our business climate. Uh, and, and that's, that's seen in, in the growth numbers and so forth. So, um, 
you know, that's certainly not full on libertarianism, uh, but that's that's moving in the libertarian direction. Yeah. Um, yeah. Although the one last thing I would say, Fine, look, yeah. Uh, in terms of comparing, you know, libertarian libertarian regime to the extent that even isn't a, a you know contradiction, uh, and right. and uh, communist. Uh, I mean, look, I'd I'd much rather live under a libertarian uh, regime than a, a communist one, uh, and and I think really given the choice and uh, with with adequate information, most people would would make that same choice. So yeah, I, well, I would say that it's. Uh thankfully, uh, a false choice. And I'm glad that it is because, and here I get to bring in uh, our, our favorite political philosopher, Edmund Burke. You know, I think all of these sort of radical, extreme philosophies rest on a fundamentally flawed view of human nature. That's the other thing that Evan kind of brings in that kind of, you know, uh, seem good on paper, but not practical and implemented. I, I would say absolutely because they're not based on a view of human nature as sort of uh, flawed and irrational and, you know, that sort of thing. And that's why the thought of someone like an Edmund Burke or, or David Hume is just so incredibly appealing to me. And I know to you too, Jay, because we, we recognize how limited we are and, and why these schemes that suggested people are, can be these perfectly rational uh, utility maximizers or that they will, if only free from the shackles of capitalism, be willing to share and eat to each according to his right. means, that sort of thing. We know that that's just not who human beings work and building a society on that. You know, I have a kid with my libertarian friends all the time that, yeah, libertarianism would be great if everyone were like you, but everyone's not as rational and intelligent as you. And that's just the world we have to deal with. And so that's the problem I have with radical libertarianism or radical communism is not that some of their ideas don't make sense when implemented in broader kind of system that we have. But if you try to put that in place as an overarching ideology, it's bound to fail because of how human beings are and how those ideologies don't rep, don't recognize some fundamental truths about how human beings are. Yeah, I think that's, yeah. So there you go. Cause we are, we are weak and limited uh, individuals. If, essentially. If, if, all, if all men were angels, uh, no government would be necessary. There, there, right? there you that's, go. Absolutely. That's John Locke, I think. Right. That's, it's, yeah. I think it's, I think you're right. Actually. Well, it's, it's certainly one of the founder kind of era. So I know we, we fundamentally agree on that certain and certainly. And on that fundamental agreement, Jay, I think we are all out of listener mail. So, Hey, if you want us to address your question, your issue, your complaint, you think we got something wrong or we're not talking enough about something, we really want to hear from you. You know how to get in touch with us. It's mail at politicsguys.com, or you can always uh, chime in in the comments section of politicsguys.com. There's our Facebook page, facebook.com slash politicsguys page, any of those ways. We want to know what you think about us, what your concerns are, and how we can address them. But until uh, next week, that is it for us. Thanks for listening. We do hope you like what you heard. Also, please remember, if you haven't filled out the listener survey, uh, we would really like you to do that. And again, the link will be in the show notes. Uh, that's pretty much it. Essentially, aside from saying the executive producers of the Politics Guys are me, Michael Baranowski, you, Jay, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.